Good morning. Our word from today comes from Genesis 35, 1 through 15. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rebekah's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. So he called its name Alan Bacchus. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padam Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you. And I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up from him in the place where he had spoken with him. And Jacob set up a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken with him Bethel. Hey, good morning, everyone. Uh, I had planned to preach through all of 35, but... Uh, I was four pages deep by the time I got to verse eight. And so it's only one through 15 this week, but I'll tell you why. There there are several things, including right at the beginning, there's two things right away that I'm going to repeat that I've said several times. There's another one a little bit later as well. And so I thought, well, I've said this before. They're they're foundational things that I really want us all to hear and, 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 and settle in. But why... Should I do it or not, basically? And and here's why I chose to do that. The whole passage is a passage that repeats. There's almost nothing new in here. God God gives us the things we need to know over and over again, and so so am I. (laughs) So there you go. Uh, The main point of the passage is that Jacob finally made it back to Bethel, the house of God, the place God had met with Jacob the place he'd been forced and commanded to flee from many years earlier, and the place he had promised to return to if only God would protect him. Throughout the entire time of Jacob's exile, God had been entirely, completely, wholly faithful to him. And we'll see in this text this morning, he would promise again through this covenant reminder that he always would be. In this passage, we see even though even though Jacob had come in and out of faithfulness, we, we saw that throughout his exile, in this passage, he was almost entirely exemplary in his obedience to God. He did just what God said. He put off idols. He watched as the holy terror of God fell upon the 
nations around him. He put up an altar and a pillar to honor God. He made offerings to God, and he led his family to join him in these things. All of these are remarkably exemplary, and we'll look at them. Well, here's the thing, Grace. God had determined... God had decided at at the fall, the first few chapters of the Bible, mankind fell in Adam. Well, God had determined and even promised then, right away in Genesis 3, to save a people. We find out as Genesis, we found out as Genesis went along that he determined to do do so through one particular family. The key for us is that he did so not because they were special in and of themselves or that they were deserving in and of themselves, but precisely, hear this grace, Kyle shared this with us earlier in the the exhortation, he determined to do so not because they were special or deserving, but but precisely because they weren't. God chose Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob so that all would know that salvation was by God alone, that it is God alone who saves. Their sin was truly sinful, but it was also, as Paul would note many years later, another child of Abraham, of Jacob in Romans 5.20. The fact that God chose the sinful people through whom to bring salvation was an unmistakable declaration that if anyone was going to be saved, Abraham or Isaac or Jacob or you or I or anyone, it would be because of God's mercy and grace, not because of our merit. Well, in this passage, we move further along in this story of salvation. We move further along toward the fullness fullness of that salvation of the offspring of Abraham. Let's pray that God would help us to appreciate both what that meant in Jacob's day and in the day that the Israelites first received the book of Genesis and also today in order that we'd be able to honor God more fully because of it. Let's pray. God, there's so much here. There's so much that's familiar here. There are so many aspects of this story, this this part of the story of redemption that I long, (laughs) all week, I long to have driven deeper into my heart. And as a pastor and a preacher of the Word of God, I long to have driven deeper into the hearts of the people of Grace Church. There is so much here that we, we need. If, if we are to live lives that are pleasing to you, that are consistent with our professions of faith, that are honoring to you, there are, there are so many things in this story that we need driven deeper into us. We thank you that in Christ you've promised to do so. You don't promise us the rate at which you will or the time at which you will, but you, you promise that all who are in Christ will know true holiness. You began a good work in us, and you will see it through to completion. You not only called and justified, you also sanctify and persevere, and eventually you will glorify. God, we know that insofar as our hope is in Christ, the things we see in this passage will be true of us, increasingly in this life and ultimately in the next. And so I pray that you would fill this room with people who will fight for this. You've called us not to be passive, even even though our sanctification is a gift from you, it is also something we participate in. And so help us to trust ultimately in your grace and in your promises. But God, let this chapter, these verses within this chapter, be a battle cry to your people, to us, 
to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to, to fight. The, there, there's language of striving and, and like a, a good farmer or an athlete or a soldier. Let us, let us go after this with the strength you provide. There's much here for us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. So again, I, I told you right, right, right off the bat, there's two things that made this sermon 15 verses instead of however many there are, 30, 29. Uh, and, and here's the first one right off the bat. Would you look at the first two words? <laughs> it's not the heart of this passage, but it's the heart underneath this passage. Look at the first two words. I've pressed on this before. I'm going to press on it again. Fight with me to appreciate what these first two words mean. God, God said, the first two words, God said, it's hard. In fact, it's so hard that I think it's right to say it's impossible to quantify the significance of the words God said. Just in, in those two words, in those two words is limitless power and glory and grace and ferocity and wisdom and authority. For those who reject God as God, his words are a continual reminder of his reign in judgment and are falling short. But to the children of God, the words of God are a reminder of his continual presence and care and love and guidance. In Jacob's day, as we see here, God often spoke directly to his chosen people. Later, he spoke primarily through a group known as the prophets. In the New Testament times, he spoke through his son, Jesus, who is the very word of God. Since the death and resurrection of Jesus, the primary place God says is in the Bible. The Bible contains the words of God inspired by the Holy Spirit and written down by the, by the apostles. It is entirely clear, Grace, the word of God given to us, we have in our Bibles, is entirely clear. It's entirely sufficient to honor God in every way. It's entirely powerful and it's entirely necessary. That's why we make such a big deal out of it at Grace Church. That's why we preach carefully and slowly through it. That's why our music is chosen based on how clearly and faithfully and beautifully it expresses the words of God. That is why we seek to pray through. You heard Kyle pray through. And in our exhortation, we pray through passages of the Bible and encourage you to memorize them. At the bottom of your bulletin, if you haven't noticed, every week is the fighter verse. That's why we pray through it and memorize it. That's why our children's curriculum comes straight out of the Bible. That's why we have Berea for adults. The goal is to teach you and train you to read the word of God as it's meant to be read and apply it as it's meant to be applied. That's why we try to make every decision in light of the teaching that is given to us in the word of God. Why? Because we believe that God is God and therefore his word is our light and life. So therefore... When we read the words God said at the beginning of Genesis 35, Grace Church, people of God, your ears, let them perk up. (laughs) And God said, let your ears perk up. Let your eyes lock in. Let your hearts, expect your hearts to beat a little bit faster and your minds to engage more fully. God is about to speak, and in that, once again, comes a tidal wave of power, glory, grace, ferocity, wisdom, Authority. Fight this morning. Afresh. Fight again. I I know you are. Do it again. Learn to love that. 
So the question is then, what did he say? (laughs) Whatever it is, we know it's awesome. So what is it? What did he say? In simplest terms, he spoke a command, two commands. Here's another thing. Caused the sermon to be 15 verses instead of 29. Said this before, I'll say it again. Kids, I have a question for you. You ready, kids? Lock you. Tell me the first thing that comes to mind when your parents command you to do something. What's the first thing that comes to mind? Think about it for a second. Billy, go clean your room. What's the first thing that comes to mind? All right. (laughs) I doubt it, but all right. (laughs) That would be awesome. Here's, here's my experience. This is anecdotal. This is, this is just my experience from my own childhood. And I mean, I'm not going to say from my kids, but maybe. <clears throat> here's my experience, kids. When you hear your parents command you to do something, one of two things happen. <laughs> Pastor's kid right there. One of two things happen. <clears throat> if the, the, the question comes to your mind, you can just tell your parents usually maybe make a face, a, a certain face when they're about to tell you to do something or take on a certain posture. And as soon as you see that, the question that goes through your mind, or, or maybe it's right after you hear it, the question is, is it fun? Will it be fun? I mean, are they commanding me to go with them to Valley Fair? Uh, are, they, are they commanding me to eat a bunch of chocolate or candy or... First question, that, at least in my childish mind, uh, is will it be fun? If so, great. Mom, Dad, you guys are awesome. <laughs> I just, the obedience to you is, I'm in. Obedience to fun commands is easy, isn't it, kids? If it's something you already want to do, it's easy. If not, however, all too often, outcome the whys. Why? I mean, you don't care. We know this, kids. We know you do not care why. But out come the whys. And do I have tos? You start turning into little lawyers. You know, my brother didn't have to do that. Or why don't you ask so-and-so? Or uh, my, my personal favorite, just a second. Just a second. So those start coming out. Just a second. I just have to finish one thing, which you wouldn't have needed to do if I told you to eat chocolate. Sorry, I'm talking to you guys now. I'm going to come back to the... Okay, so what's the deal with that? What's up with that? Obedience to not-so-fun commands is not as easy, is it? Kids, God's told you to obey your parents. Ephesians 6.1, you can look it up later. God, God has told you to obey your parents, and so you should. Even if it doesn't seem fun and even if you don't fully understand, there, there's a little bit of a problem. We, we know this, kids. You've experienced this as well. We're not. We're, we're Christians. As parents, we're Christians. We know this, too. We at times make commands or give commands that are misguided. We don't mean to, usually. We usually mean well, even if our commands are misguided. And, and so it makes obedience to us right, but trickier. Trickier, perhaps, than it should be. For instance, more times than I can remember, this was a source of contention for our boys growing up. Tell them to trust me when I was cutting their hair, even though I didn't really know what I was doing. And... <laughs> Probably 50% of the time I draw blood. I didn't mean to mess up their hair or cut their ears. And it was right that they obeyed me, but there was also a healthy skepticism in, in them. But here's, here's the thing. Grace, I, man, oh man. I, 
told that story to sort of make you laugh and lean in a little bit so that you would hear this. Kids, Grace Church, the commands of God are never like that. He is never misguided. He'll never cut your ears. His commands are always perfect and trustworthy. They are never optional. We dare not say to God, we, we dare not say why, or just a second, or do I have to? We dare not refuse God the joyful obedience that he is due. They are never optional. The commands of God are never optional, but they are always good. Truly, Grace, fight for this. Fight for this. Read the word and look for these and fight for this. Look for the commands of God and fight to believe this. Every command of God is a precious gift of God to his people. Your flesh might not like all of them the same, but that's a problem with your flesh, not the command. Fight to believe what is true, namely that every command of God is a precious gift for his people. So what then were the commands that God gave to Jacob? God said this. He said, arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to God, to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. What we're going to see his response in just a second. But what I just told you is that having heard this, such a clear word from God, such a clear command, this ought to have been music to Jacob's ears. He ought to have felt lighter and freer. I mean, maybe... Who, who knows in, in his flesh what he wanted, but he ought to have, okay, thank you, God. My, my flesh was going this way. Thank you for your command. This is music to my ears. I love you. You are God. I love your words. I love your commands. I, I want nothing more than to honor you, and now I know exactly how to do that. Thank you. Clear commands from God. Get this. This is why every time. Clear commands from God are a clear path to treasure. Clear commands from God are a clear path to treasure. We we in our sin feel like we know a better path to better treasure. To live by faith means to believe that the commands of God are the clearest path to the greatest treasure. Well, let's back up just a little bit. Uh, Jacob had tricked his brother Esau more than once. Because of that, his brother Esau wanted to kill him. Well, because Jacob was the chosen son of the promise, God had chosen him through which to continue on his covenant promises. So to save his life, God commanded him to leave Bethel, the city where he was, where his brother was, to leave the promised land entirely, to become an exile. Well, Jacob obeyed, and and in addition to that, he promised God. He said, God, if, if you'll protect me, I know, I know I'm going to leave, but if you will protect me while I'm outside of the promised land, if, if you will keep me and sustain me, I'll, I will return to the city and I will honor you as God. Well, at the proper time then, God did in fact command him to return. That was back in chapter 31. And Jacob mostly obeyed. He came back to the promised land, but not all the way back to Bethel, as he had said. We don't know for sure why. But he didn't come all the way back. And let me, let me just say this. This is a short, I thought about camping here for a while too. But let me give you just a, a short little parenthetical pastoral plea. There's a book by a guy named Jerry Bridges called Respectable Sins. Of course, there are no actually respectable sins. His point is that we treat some as if they are. There are certain sins we tolerate in the church. We ought not to, but we do. And in the same way, I don't know what the clever 
title would be, but it's something like respectable levels of obedience. We tolerate 90% obedience. We, we, we even esteem people who get most of the way there. You know, maybe we're struggling to feel like we obey 50% of the time. And so if we see somebody who obeys 90%, we think, wow, that's awesome. And in some ways it is. Some, in some ways that's a gift of God. But don't fall into the trap of believing that partial obedience is pleasing to God. Parents, you know this when your kids obey halfway, clean up your stuff, and they clean up two things, and then there's three left. You know that. You feel that when you experience it yourself. Don't, don't buy into the lie that there are such things as respectable sins or respectable partial obedience. Well, to this point, Jacob had partially obeyed. Well, here, at God's command, it changed at least mostly. <laughs> in this passage, as I just read, God commanded him to go the rest of the way, to fully obey the vow that he had made to God. Jacob was to go to Bethel and honor God as God. That's the point of the altar, the, this building of the altar. It was meant to be a visible sign of obedience to the second part of Jacob's vow, you will be my God. It seems clear that in this instance, I told you, The commands of God are non-optional and precious gift-ish in their nature. It seems Jacob understood both of those things. He knew that God's command wasn't optional, and he knew that it was a precious gift. For he began to obey immediately. Interestingly, it seems he understood another aspect of God's command, one I haven't mentioned yet, but that is in this text. It's built into every one of God's commands, namely that they come from one Every command of God, who does it come from? What, what is a command? What is the source of a command of God? It is from someone, from one, God himself, who is set apart from everything common and corrupt. That is to say, every command of God comes from one who is holy, holy, holy. And so without even having to be, to, to be told, Jacob said, look at verse two, he said to his household and all who are with him, put away all your foreign gods. That are among you, and purify yourself, yourselves, and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel. God has told us to go to Bethel, which is to say to the house of God, into his presence. Jacob knew, because he'd experienced the holiness of God, that you can't do that with other gods. And so he he commanded his family, set yourselves apart, get rid of your foreign gods, that I may go there and make an altar to to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So Jacob gave all the, so they gave Jacob all the foreign gods they had and the rings that were in their ears. I don't, I got a lot of questions from that. Had Jacob collected foreign gods or just his family? Why had he tolerated them to this point? What exactly were these foreign gods and why were the earrings so significant? Were these things part of the spoil that they had collected from plundering, slaughtering, and then plundering Shechem? We don't know the answer to these questions, but we do know the main point. What's the point of this? Jacob knew that God was a holy God, and as a result, he chose to honor him as God by obeying and ending his family's disobedience. Do you get this, Grace? Think about this for a second. For Jacob to obey God's command, but to do so while toting around idols or tolerating them among his people would have been entirely absurd. 
I think I think this is a sentence worth writing down or, or remembering. Jacob understood something we all need to settle on. What's that? That either grace, God is God. Either God is God, he has no rivals, and deserves our total obedience. Either that, either he is God, he has no rivals, and he deserves our total obedience, or he isn't, and he isn't worth obeying at all. There is no place for partial obedience. There there is no place for believing the things that the Word of God says about God in coming halfway. That's a big deal. So much of Jacob's response here is commendable. It's it's awesome to look at. God tells him to do something, and and he does it. And, And even more so, we see the heart in it and the fact that he though not commanded, put off idols and commanded his people to as well. There's, as we've come to expect, (laughs) a measure of disobedience as well, or, or at least something questionable in what he does. Rarely do we find an act of total obedience from the people of God, just as rarely do we find an act of total obedience in our own hearts. That's something that both grieves me to see in the people of God, but also gives us comfort. Again, we're, we're not that much different. <laughs> we're, we're not that much different. Our hope just as theirs is the grace of God. Well, what do I mean by that? Where, where here even did he maybe fall short? Instead of completely destroying the foreign gods, we're told that Jacob hid them under the tabernacle tree, terebinth tree that was near Shechem. Years later, we see an alternative approach to this. Years later, one of Jacob's descendants would find himself in the same position. But instead of burying or or hiding the idols that he found, he burned them with fire, ground it to powder, and scattered it on the water, and made the people of Israel drink of it. That's another way to handle the idols you find among your people. We don't know for sure why Jacob didn't do that here. Maybe maybe this was the best he could do, was, was to bury him and hide him. But one thing we do know for sure is that by doing so, by not setting them to fire and grinding them to powder and putting them in water and drinking them to show how horrific these were, by not doing that, he left open the possibility of returning to them. And therein is another lesson, familiar one for us, Grace, here's a question for you. Do you seek to kill sin? As God's word calls you to, Colossians 3.5, Romans 8.13, or do you simply seek to set it aside or hide it or bury it? Do you try to put to death your sins or simply suppress them? In either case, what happens immediately looks roughly the same. You place some distance between yourself and and your sin, in a way, that's good. But the heart between the two is very different. The heart that seeks to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Spirit is one that has seen the holiness of God. The heart that seeks to simply suppress our sin is one that is likely experienced or imagined experiencing some undesirable earthly consequence. Now, if that consequence gets lifted or, or goes away, It leaves open the possibility that we might return to our sin. The first approach, the heart that seeks to kill sin, Paul says, leads to life in Colossians 3.5. 
The second heart, the heart that seeks to just continually suppress our sin or put it out of sight and just keep it from letting other people see it or falling into the consequences of it, that kind, that approach leads to death. So again, this passage invites us to consider, do we mean to honor God in the mortification of our sin or leave the door open to return to them by just hiding them? Do we mean to honor God entirely or do we mean to honor God only when it's convenient? The next section is truly (laughs) remarkable. Verse 5, the small band of chosen misfits marched on through enemy territory. This is the territory that had been promised to them, but it hadn't been handed over to them yet. They were certainly too small in number to take it by force. They marched through it. They were outsiders in this land, and therefore, Jacob knew this. I'll read a passage to you about that in just a second. But Jacob understood that they were entirely vulnerable from a worldly perspective. And yet, as we've seen over and over and over, the children of God, to be a child of God is to be anything but vulnerable. To be a child of God is to be anything but vulnerable, and it is to see the world from anything but a worldly perspective. Verse 5 says, as they journeyed towards full obedience, all the way to Bethel, all the way back to the house of God, in enemy territory, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. You remember the end of 34? We were just there. (laughs) Jacob's sons, two of them, slaughtered Hamor and his clan. And having done so, Jacob openly wondered. He openly worried. Do you remember that? Jacob worried. My numbers are few. Two of his sons had caused a stink by slaughtering a a group of people in this land. And And Jacob said, my numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. I love that this passage is a rebuke. (laughs) Jacob, how many times do I need to do this? How many times do I need to show you that I am God Almighty? How many times do I need to show you that the nations are in my palm by the hand of the mighty hand of God, what Jacob experienced was exactly the opposite of that. The nations feared the few because God Almighty was with them. Grace, God doesn't always work this way. He doesn't always do it exactly like this. But what is clear and visible here is true always. There's another one to write down, if you would. To walk in obedience is to be free from any real danger. Now, don't misunderstand me. You might die if you obey. (laughs) So what do I mean by that? How do those two things fit together? I just said, to walk in obedience is to be free of any real danger. And then I said, well, but you might die if you obey. Those don't seem to go together. Many have died for obeying. Many are dying today around the world for their obedience, but they've never been safer. How do those go together? Even if obedience to God leads to our death, we are never safer than we are than when we are in the will of God. That's exactly what the Apostle Paul meant when he wrote Philippians 1, 20 and 21. He said this, With full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored. Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now that end, we'll sing shortly. I, I asked Matt to sing 
In light of where we began, uh, uh, speak, O Lord, to help us understand what the Word of God, the, the unique glory of the Word of God. And we're going to sing right after this these words. Love these words. <laughs> Most of the time, anyway. Be still and remember the worst that can come, but shortens our journey and hastens us home. Grace, when you obey, perhaps the nations will tremble like they did here, or perhaps they'll put you to death. Either way, there is no more secure place that you can be than in the will of God. Amen. So the family of God continued. They continued on unharmed in ways that don't make sense. They continued on safely in one fashion, all the way to Bethel and all the way to the building of the altar. Verse 6, And Jacob came to Luz, that is Bethel, which is the land of Canaan, in the land of Canaan, he and all the people who were with him. And there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself to him when he, was, when he fled from his brother. How sweet it is, Grace, once again, to have a clear command of God, to know exactly what God wants and to be strengthened by God to do it. How sweet it is to obey God's commands and the power that God provides to be so clearly carried along in your obedience by the strong arm of God. As I said a moment ago, God doesn't always do it exactly like this, but it is a grace that we are right to seek out and ask for continually. Here's my prayer. Here's the prayer that I, I want you to pray. You can, If you want to pray this, you can pull it off the website later, the manuscript. God, through your spirit, your word and your people, Help me to know your will for this decision and that one and everyone. Help me to know your will. Help me to walk in your ways and for your glory and the knowledge of your holiness. My flesh may be confused and it may be weak. It may even fail or be brought to an end, but your power and grace are sufficient. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And so I will follow you wherever you lead and whatever it costs, in the knowledge that there is in store for me and all who believe a crown of righteousness and everlasting life. That's our prayer. If we believe this, that's our prayer. This passage marks the fullness, the the faithfulness of God in the fulfillment of Jacob's vow. It is a sweet passage of completion. It is sweet, even as it ends in a brief note on the death of Deborah. What a weird clause, verse 8, to put in here. Where does this come from? Even in this, it's sad that she died, but the reason this is included just adds to the sweetness. And Deborah, Rebecca's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. The name of the tree means tree of sadness or weeping. It's right to be sad about this. Deborah would have been 180 years old at this point. That's quite a life. The main purpose, though, again, is sweet. It's to, including this, the main point was to note the completion of this journey, this long journey, and the transfer, again, of the covenant promises from Abraham to Isaac, now to Jacob. God's salvation would come through this family and the chosen son from within each generation. And this marks that. The last section, the final section, Jacob received another visit from God. Just as we began with a brief reflection on the preciousness of God's word, we'll end with a reflection on the 
preciousness of his presence. Look at verse 9. God appeared to Jacob again. He appeared to him again. What awesome words. And he blessed him. Once again, for those who reject God as God, his words are a terror and his presence is a terror. But for those who love him, those who love him as God, his presence is his great blessing. <laughs> so, and he blessed him. And you're thinking, great, what, did he get a car? <laughs> did, he get, did he get a private jet? What, what did he get? He got God. <laughs> his presence is his blessing. Let this serve as a reminder, Grace. Kids especially, man, this was a struggle for me when I was your age. Still is to some degree. But let this sink in. Heaven's greatest gift is not a family reunion or restored health or the end of material lack. It's not just, it's not mainly the wiping away of tears. If those things are your greatest desire, you will never receive them or heaven. Rather, heaven's greatest gift is the blessed, the blessing of the presence of God. Fellowship with God is the greatest gift and the highest reward. In the next few verses, God was kind to reiterate and confirm a handful of things. There's six things. I'm going to go quickly through these. There's six things that God was kind to, re- to, to reaffirm. Jacob's nature. God's own nature, Jacob's inclusion in the covenant promises, and through them other things as well. Verses 10 through 15 are verses of remembrance. Let me give you, if you want want something to do in response to this, take some time, especially if you have young people in your home or, or maybe in your DG, or get together a group of friends and write out the ways you can remember God being faithful to you. Write them out. Tell them to the generations. Remind yourself of the faithfulness of God to you over and over and over again. Verses 10 through 15 are like that. They're remembrance verses. It's all been said before and done before, but God is kind. They point back six different times to key events in covenant history. The first two are in 10. And God said to him, your name is no longer Jacob. No longer shall your name be Jacob, but Israel is your be, but Israel shall be your name. It's both two things. It's a parallel to what his grandfather Abraham had experienced. God changed Abram's name to Abraham in order to confirm that he was, in fact, the chosen one of God way back in chapter 17. It's a reminder of that. It's a, it's a drawing to Jacob's mind that you are a part of something way bigger than yourself. And secondly, it was a reminder of who Jacob really was. He was the one who had wrestled with God and had prevailed, not, not because he overpowered God, but because, because God had chosen him to be his people. Jacob was to walk with God in the unique confidence that these things provide. Again, this chapter is one of completion, and verse 10 helps us to see that. The, the next reflection it's in the beginning of 11 where God again reveals his true nature. This too was revealed for the first time to Abraham back in chapter 17. Do you see his name? He says, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. I, I am God Almighty. In a, another reminder, Jacob was given big commands by God, big promises by God. J- Jacob was told to do things. Remember, <laughs> for Abraham, it was sacrifice your son. And for Jacob, it's be in exile, go away from the promised land. And 
and there'll be bigger commands still. But who was the one commanding? Again, it was the Holy One, the set-apart one, but it was also the one who was holy in his power. He was God Almighty, the God of all might, the God without limit. God was making great promises to Jacob, and Jacob was right to believe them because of the nature of the one who made them. Here's the fourth reminder, verse 11, a little bit later. I am God Almighty, therefore, another command, be fruitful and multiply. This was, again, meant to help Jacob realize he, he, his promises were rooted in a bigger story. All the way back to the beginning of creation, all the way back to Genesis 1, this was the command that God had given to Adam and Eve. They were to fulfill, I love this, they were under the covenant of works, they were to fulfill the earth with offspring that would do good works. That was their covenant. They were to, Adam and Eve were to fill the earth with offspring who would do good works. Jacob was to fill the earth with offspring who would believe God's promises. It's awesome. The fifth flashback comes from the second half of 11 and into 12. A nation and a company of nations shall come come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, your grandfather and father, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Two key covenant promises, the land and the people, and both are here. Jacob was the one through whom God's covenant promises would continue. Finally then, As God departed, we see another batch of reminders, of remembrances in 13 through 15. Back in chapter 8, where Jacob had a dream and encountered God, and he had this dream of the ladder to heaven, we find an almost perfect parallel in these last few verses. He first then named this place Bethel. He also set up a pillar. He also poured oil on it. He also made this vow to God, which finally is coming to fruition here. He said this back in 28. If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. That was his vow. And here it came to fruition. What an awesome scene this is. Jacob, the chosen one of God, decades later, finally made it all the way back to God in the house of God. So in conclusion, let me remind you that the real keys to this passage are only hinted at in this passage. In the middle of verse 11, God promised Jacob, for instance, that kings would come from him. Indeed, they would. David and Solomon, among the greatest. But one day, long after Jacob and David and Solomon, a different kind of king would come, a different measure of fullness of this promise. His name is Jesus. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He would make a way for all the world, not just the physical descendants of Jacob, to become the chosen people of God. The way was through faith and his sacrificial death and resurrection. Jesus, the greatest king promised in verse 11, would die in place of sinners to pay a ransom for sin. And in that, the house of God, which was a city, which would become a moving tent, which would become a temple, would become the very people of God. The full fullness of this came through Jesus and the sending of the Spirit to dwell in us. God is with us. We are the house of God through faith. 
And so that's a reminder as we continue on through this story in Genesis, through Jacob's story and the story of his children, is a reminder that this story is a part of the larger story, the greatest story, the story of God bringing a people to himself through Jesus Christ.